Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 66. After Hours with Dr. Devon Brown. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, and it's therefore an after-hours episode. And today, I'm joined by a close friend of Dr. Charlie Starr, a former guest of the show. We welcome Dr. Devon Brown. Dr. Devon Brown is a Lilly Scholar and Professor of English at Asbury University, where, in addition to other literature classes, he teaches a course on Lewis and Tolkien. He was born and grew up on Chicago's South Side and is the recipient of the Francis White U Book Award, Asbury's highest honor for teaching. He has a PhD from the University of South Carolina and a master's degree from the University of Florida. Dr. Brown is an award-winning author and a frequent speaker at conferences and college campuses. In 2008, he was invited to teach one of the summer seminars held at the Kilns, and so for a week, he slept in C.S. Lewis's bedroom. One thing that he has done which has really impressed his mother. Dr. Brown is on record as holding the opinion that despite the author's own words on the subject, Till We Have Faces is not C.S. Lewis's best book, a claim that some see as courageous and others see as just plain nuts. Lastly, Dr. Brown is the author of a book which we'll be talking about today, A Life Observed, a spiritual biography of C.S. Lewis. Dr. Devon Brown, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you, David. Uh, I've enjoyed listening to you and Matt and Andrew and your many wonderful guests, so it's, a, it's an honor to be on. So your claim about Till We Have Faces, I so wish Andrew was here. <laughs> Why do you think... Or not. Or not. As I, I think I can hear him screaming from Florida right now. Uh, why do you think Till We Have Faces is not C.S. Lewis's finest work? And what do you actually think is? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I'll just say this, you know, it's the C.S. Lewis world is is very small and very congenial. So Andrew's a great friend of mine, and Charlie Starr is a great friend of mine. And um, as you get to know all the Lewis people, they'll become great friends of yours. And you guys do a great job of introducing them to your audience. So um, there was a time where people were praying for me, uh, you know, that I would see the light. <laughs> and this is a true story. There was an intervention held that Charlie Starr was responsible for, where a number of you know, Lewis people got in a circle around me and said, okay, why don't you think Lewis, uh, this is his greatest book till we have faces. When was the last time you wrote it? We're not going to let you go re- read it until you agree to reread it this summer. We will be rereading it with you. So there was an intervention <laughs> during which I did read it again recently, just to give it another chance. And so um, let's see if I can't draw on Lewis's own words, right? I mean, there's like six letters where he thinks it's, he says, I think it's my best book. Far and away, my best book, as Andrew keeps saying. Yes, far and away, the best book I have written, right? I've got that. Although he does at one point, his last word on it is, um, it's my favorite of all books, but I suppose that's because it's the last. So we have that. But I will go a different direction on that. One is, you know, we have to be careful of factions. They'll spread up wherever you go. I'm of Paul. I'm Apollos. You know, I'm of Screw Tape. I am of Till We Have Faces. So we want to be careful there. But I'll go a different direction, and that is to say, to use Lewis's own words from um, his uh, chapter on pride. He has this point where he says, "Well, are you saying it's wrong to be proud of your son or your father or your school or your regiment?" And in a very Lewisian way, he comes back and says, "Well, I suppose that all depends on what you mean by proud of." 
So I would say, you know, it all depends by what do you mean by best, all right? What do you mean by his best book? And I'll take one other little tangent in, in a long-winded answer to a short question. Uh, and that is this. When I was little, my mom and dad used to enjoy a yearly thing that I detested, but they liked it, so I kind of liked it. The, the wonderful Roll, Rose Bowl Parade on New Year's Day. They would watch hours and hours of floats driving by. And anyway, they would it seemed like every other float won a prize. There was the Grand Marshal's Prize. There was the Director's Award. There was the Founder's Prize. There was the President. Yeah, everybody. So I would give many books a prize. So you could say uh, Lewis's most influential book, Mere Christianity. I would say his um, maybe most memorable and most, mo most moving, Horse and His Boy, right? Uh, and, and certainly, Till We Have Faces is a great book. But I would say it's his most ambitious book. Um, and and if, if I had to say why it isn't his best, um, Emily Dickinson has that lovely quote, tell all the truth, but tell it slant, which is, means come at it in sort of an oblique way. And for me, uh, Till We Have Faces is just a little too slant, uh, which is why people struggle with it, um, I think. That said, um, it's a, it, it is a great book. It, it, the, the, other, the other tricky answer is you can say, well, what's your favorite Lewis book? And that's the, you know, the one I'm currently reading. That's the other answer that everybody uses. By the way, I think his most insightful book, Screwtape. I don't think I disagree. <laughs> well, we'll talk about your book shortly, but we should first set it up by the quote of the week. And today's quotation comes from a Lewis work, which I don't think we've ever actually quoted on the show before, a preface to Paradise Lost. The first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral, is to know what it is, what it is intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. After that has been discovered, the temperance reformer may decide that the corkscrew was made for a bad purpose, and the communists may think the same about the cathedral, but such questions come later. The first thing is to understand the object before you. As long as you think the corkscrew was meant for opening tins, or the cathedral for entertaining tourists, you can say nothing to the purpose about them. And I'll explain why I chose that quotation a little later in the show, after we've had our drink of the week. And for me, the drink of the week is a beer. We've had a lot of scotch recently, so I'm taking us back to our roots, and I got a lovely Belgian white Aleffa. Dutch Brown, are you drinking anything? Yes, I've got a very large cup of tea, and not just any tea, but Twining's English breakfast. Um, <laughs> Which, which for, for in my family is, is very refined tea. We discovered it, Cher and I, when we went to England. We spent some time in England, Oxford. We hiked St. Cuthbert's Way, mm -hmm. ended up at the Holy Isle of Lindstrom. We hiked um, the Cotswold Way down to Bath. Anyway, we, we, we grew quite, quite fond of English breakfast and thought it was pretty sophisticated. Till we got home and, and one of our tea snob friends said, oh, that's not really tea. <laughs> and I said, really, what is it? Pieces of tea. It's not really tea. It's pieces of tea. So anyway, you know, there's the Lewis quote, you can't get a cup of tea large enough or a book long enough to suit me, um, which, by the way, Lewis never wrote. Um, he said it to Walter Hooper, and you can find it if people go looking for it in the preface, in all places, of other worlds. So that was actually the first Lewis quotation I ever tried to track down because it was my favorite. I needed to make sure that it was actually true. <laughs> well, anyway, cheers. Cheers. 
By the way, I got to say this. Um, I'm glad you're getting back to your roots. I, I, I blame Andrew for this. You guys are moving a little from pints with Jack to sort of liquor with Lewis. <laughs> um, you know, a little bit, a little bit step up. I wonder if if Matt's got the website for liquor with Lewis yet, or sipping with C or something. I don't know. But you know, it's been a while since you had any pints on. Yes, it was because. When Matt and I discovered that we both liked scotch, we got all excited, and so we ran off in that direction. Plus, there were fewer belches that we needed to have our audio editor take out. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good sip. Sipping works a little bit better. Yeah. Now, the standard question whenever we have someone new on the show is to ask the guest to tell us the story of how they first came across Lewis, and also to identify the point in their story where their relationship with Lewis started to get serious. So, Dr. Brown, what's your story? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked because I think people look at somebody who's written a book or two or something and think they must have had Lewis in their life all along and taken many courses in them. And and surely the average person could never do that. But I grew up in a very blue collar part of the south side of Chicago, um, where, as I sometimes say, you could go miles and not find anybody who read a poem. Right. And I was this bookish kid there. And uh, went to a church that was really great on loving God with all your heart, but not so much the rest of the verse, not so much with all your mind or soul, and, and, and nothing about the imagination. So I was, I was in a bit of a desert there. And uh, I was thinking for the quote of the week, is a very weak tie. And there's, there's a, it's a quote sometimes attributed to Confucius, sometimes to other, other famous uh, thinkers from back when. But I know it from the Mask of Zorro. Anthony Hopkins says it to Antonio Banderas. And, and for a while, I tried to tell it in my Anthony Hopkins imitation. And people said, what are you doing? What, what, what is that? I said, it's my Anthony Hopkins. And my wife just said, you must never do that again. So anyway, Anthony Hopkins says, there is a saying, a very old saying, that when the pupil is ready, the master will appear. Right? And that was me. Right? I was uh, 15 years old, living on the south side of Chicago, going to a very blue-collar school and blue-collar church. And this bookish kid needed something to feed on. My older brother was first by guy in our family to go off to college, right? Which is a big deal. He comes home at Thanksgiving and in ways of most older brothers, he throws a book on my bed and says, here, you should read this. And as a dutiful younger brother, I was what, 15, sophomore in high school. I read it and it was amazing. It was like no other book I'd ever read. And so I went to the public library because there's no internet back then, right? And I said to the librarian, I said, look, do you know this guy, C.S. Lewis, this author? I have a book. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Do you know if he's written anything else? Well, she goes crazy. She brings another librarian over. She says, you know, the boy doesn't know. He doesn't know about this. So, you know, she starts pulling books off the shelves. There's six more of these. And then there's a space trilogy. And then there's screw tape. And then there's great divorce. And as soon as you want to leave fiction, there's all this other stuff. So that began a, a, a great journey uh, when I was 15. And, you know, I tell my students I did not grow up knowing who C.S. Lewis was. They can they can hardly believe it. They just, it just doesn't even, you know, it's like telling them there were no cell phones at one point or no internet, it's just crazy. It's like, who are you, you know? Anyway, that's my story. And he accompanied me all the way through undergrad, master's degree, PhD, no classes in Lewis. There wasn't such a thing. Uh, and I'll just get this in. You could take a class in almost any other writer but not Lewis or Tolkien. Somehow the English canon opened up, but wouldn't let these guys in. That's okay. Uh, so I, I finished my PhD and it was okay. Uh, there was nothing spectacular. You just get it done. Anyway, there was a guy uh, and I was teaching at an Episcopal high school in Greenville, South Carolina. And there was a doctor there who was quite learned and Lewis fan. And he's, he, he hands me this little journal 
called The Lamp Post. And it's by the Southern California C.S. Lewis Society. It's a very modest journal. He said, you know, do you know about this? I said, no, I didn't know that C.S. Lewis had journals. You know, I know how to write these things. My PhD taught. So yes, I tried to write one and I sent it off to him and they accepted it. And I thought, okay, here we go. This is, this is, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. And uh, fortunately, I ended up at a school, Asbury University here on the south side of Lexington, Kentucky, where such works are accepted. And I'll, I'll tell your listeners one more story. We had friends over to eat, and the, the other husband and I were out to pick up Indian food. And he teaches at the University of Kentucky, a very snazzy R1 school. And he asked me this question. He says, what does your school think about those books you write about Lewis? And I thought, well, what, what do they think? What do you Oh, I get it. If I was at this R1 school, not only would I not get credit for writing these things, it would be sort of a mark against me. Like I might leave these kind of books published by, you know, Zondervan and uh, Baker and Brazos off of my resume, lest they count against me. I said, no, my, my school kind of likes my books where I see to try to put faith and learning together. And also I write books that, well, most people could read and understand a little dig there. So anyway, that kind of brought me to, to where I am today. And, and I really mean that, that story. When the pupil is ready, the master will appear. I think people who have known Lewis, of all the things, they, they think of him as a great teacher, right? He's been your teacher. He's been my teacher. And, and all that a teacher means, giving you insights, giving you encouragement, giving you correctives. Um, that's, that's my story. It's beautiful. <laughs> so you wrote A Life Observed a spiritual biography of C.S. Lewis. And I read this, I want to say about three years ago. And there are some quite big names attached to your book, and most of which will be familiar to most of our listeners. The Ford was written by Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham. And I was rereading your book this week, and I really can't read anything that I know he's written without hearing his voice in my head. And there were also two endorsements on the back cover, one from the late Walter Hooper, and the second endorsement was from someone our listeners might not have heard of, Michael Flaherty. Uh, and he's the co-founder and president of a company they might have heard of, Walden Media. So before we actually dive into talking about the book, how did these people get involved? Well, mostly by, by God's grace, I would say. Um, so here I am sitting in Lexington, Kentucky, and I'm working on this biography of Lewis. And, uh, you know, it's 2013 is coming up, the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death in 1963, same day as JFK. So there's this opportunity for a new work to come out. It's it, Lewis studies are kind of tricky these days. There's probably almost been enough books written by Lewis to last us for a while. There, there is a lot of them. Anyway, uh, at, at least in terms of sales, let's put it that way. And um, so I'm sitting here in Lexington, Kentucky, and I'm putting the finishing touches on it. And I get this advanced copy, and I'll reach back and get it. You can see what is this? this is an advanced copy of uh, C.S. Lewis, A Life by Alistair McGrath. Now, Alistair McGrath is brilliant. He's famous. He's got two PhDs. He, like Lewis, was born in Belfast. He, like Lewis, goes to Oxford. He, like Lewis, was an atheist, became a Christian. He, like Lewis, what, has a British accent. He's brilliant, right? I've learned lots of things from him. Anyway, I spoke, and you don't know what's coming out until you get it, right? I think, oh, I'm toast, right? This will overshadow my book in every, every way possible. So I'm thinking, whoa, I've got to do something in terms of endorsements. So, well, I'll, and I'll tell you my story. You can edit it down if it needs to be. So I had met Douglas Gresham's a couple, Doug, Douglas Gresham's a couple times. And uh, I'll just say this. I knew him. He didn't know me. Let, let, that's how it was. He and I had been on a panel uh, when uh, um, 
Dawn Treader came out with, with Michael Flaherty uh, and, you know, people exchanged cards, you know, not you know, who doesn't fit Michael Flaherty, Douglas Gresham, Devin Brown. So anyway, I have his email and I've kept it all those years. Right. So I, I wrote him an email. And, and by the way, I don't know how far we'll get in this, but he's, he was incredibly gracious and, and giving and generous. But anyway, I wrote him this email and I said, dear Mr. Gresham, you won't remember me, but, you know, a very auspicious beginning for anything, but I'm writing a biography, a spiritual biography about your stepfather. And I'm wondering if you might, you know, consider writing an endorsement or possibly a forward, um, you know, and, and I, I know you get a lot of these requests, so I won't take that much time. Yours sincerely, Deb Brown. And, you know, off it goes to Malta. Well, he writes back. He's very good at writing back. And, he, and he, he writes, Dear Devin. So the next time I have to write him, I have to say, Dear Doug, right? Dear Devin, you know, I get a lot of requests like this. And, you know, a biography, woo, that would be almost sort of endorsing it and making it the authorized biography. So I'm sure you understand why I have to say no. Sincerely yours, Doug, right? So I'm going to write him back. So I said, Dear Doug, I have to do this next time. Dear Doug. Um, and, it, you know, you know him enough. He's very good natured. And I said, you know, let me see if I can't make my case really carefully. So I said, I said, one, I said, you know, this is going to be a spiritual biography of your stepfather, something that hasn't been tried before. And then I said, you know, after this little round of them, there's not going to be a lot more biographies. This will be, you know, one of the chances for you to tell people about, you know, your stepfather. And then I, and I said, and by the way, did you kind of read carefully to see what Alistair McGrath kind of insinuated about your mom? And, you know, Anyway, because it, it wasn't great. And people can read Jerry. Don't listen to me. Read Jerry Root's piece from Christianity Today about that. So anyway, I think his interest was peaked. So he said, okay, go ahead and send me the manuscript. Um, so I did. And, and he was great. He would read a couple of chapters. He'd write back. He, If it was going to be a while, like he'd said, I'm going to be on the tractor. Because, you know, he's quite a farmer. I'm going to be on the tractor for a few days so I won't get back to you. And the more he read, the more gracious he was. At one point, he, he said, you know, you ought to add a little bit more here. You ought to do this over here. He's very, very, he's a very good writer and very good editor. He gave lots of great suggestions and a lot of good guidance. And uh, at the end, wrote a very gracious forward. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. Since then, he and I have kind of done two gigs together. He came to Asbury and um, we did an evening with Douglas Gresham for the book launch. And I'll just say this, when you write your book, David, you want to have somebody famous you know, write a forward. And then you want to have a book launch where they attend because everybody got in line and wanted to buy a book so he could sign the forward. See, that's, I hadn't <laughs> thought about that one. That's a good one. Mm. And uh, then the other thing we did, we did, a, I got invited to speak at Harding University and uh, this was a year a year out and, and, and the woman had, like you, had read my biography and said, wow, Douglas Gresham was really gracious. I said, yeah. I said, you know, you ought to, and it turns out they have quite a bit of money to bring in people. Like the person before me was Laura Bush. So they have way more money. I said, you have some money in your thing. You want to bring him in? She said, you think we could get him? I said, well, yeah, I think so. You got Laura Bush. Um, so anyway, uh, lo and behold, I contacted him. You know, once you have his email, you want to be careful with it. I contacted him. I said, Harding is interested in bringing you with me here the same time. I, can I let them? Sure. So anyway, he comes and, um, uh, I spoke, we did an interview together, but there was this one odd event where they had like a donor's dinner with lots of donors, a hundred people in the cafeteria and they had a program. And I don't know if they, because they asked me first, they thought they show it was Devin Brown, big one with Douglas Gresham. Right. And I, so I got up to speak and he spoke too. And I said, look, people, you need to hold on to this program. This Devin, you will never get Devin Brown with <laughs> Douglas Gresham. I said, this is like having Mickey Dolans with Mick Jagger. I mean, come on, people. 
<laughs> so anyway, that that that's the story. And he wrote a great, a great, very generous uh, forward. And if people get the book, don't skip the forward. Sometimes people do. Now, I thought the, thought the forward was particularly lovely. And you also got Walter Hooper and Michael Flaherty. How did yeah, that happen? So, so, so I'll just say this. Uh, you know, I listened to all your tributes with Walter Hooper, and they were lovely, as he was lovely. I mean, everyone who knows him just speaks so highly of him. And so I, I wrote him, and I said, Walter, you know, I, I, I'm writing a biography, and of course, you're so respected and revered. It would mean the world if you could give me a really, really brief endorsement, right? And I think he gave me the briefest endorsement that one could, but yet it, I don't know who is he was responding to. It said, this has the essential quality of a biography. It's reliable. And I don't know if he's suggesting, there's a number of other biographies that have not been reliable, mm -hmm. which we don't need to say who they are. People can figure out who they are. There's a couple famous examples. Yep. Uh, anyway, he was very gracious. And then Michael Flaherty is another, is another great story. So my, Michael Flaherty was president of Walden Media that made all the Narnia films. And, you know, I didn't know him and I had no idea that he would know me. He came to speak at chapel at Asbury and I'm sitting out there because Michael Flaherty's in chapel that day and I'm sitting next to my buddy and he's just so gracious. He says, oh, it's so good to be at Asbury, you know, especially the home of like one of the best Lewis scholars in the whole world, Devin Brown. I'm giving the guy next to me my elbow. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, I meet him afterwards and, and he said, are you writing a book on Caspian? I said, yes. He said, how far are you? I said, two thirds. He says, could you print it out and give it to me? before I fly home and send me the whole thing. Anyway, it turns out he's he's read all my Narnia books and, and is very gracious about him. So, and he's just a great guy. I'll just tell you this, you you ought to get him on the show. He's 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 not like somebody normally meet. I don't know how to say it. He's 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 really a saint. He's really giving and caring and he just lights lights up the world. So anyway, he wrote he wrote a very nice piece at the end too. So uh, all that all that said, I think, you know, to go up against the juggernaut that's Alistair McGrath, I think I think I needed all those things. <laughs> well, I'll also point out that you're the first of the two to be on this podcast. He's on, he, oh, he's nah. on a different one. I, I I think it's pretty good, but I'm just going to say the jury's still out. <laughs> okay. Yeah, before we go on, I just I should point this out because you guys did me Christianity. His book, which I have over here, that came out about the same time, The Intellectual World of C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. is really lovely. And I'm going to tell you this. Anytime somebody teaches you something completely new and hugely significant about Lewis, you're thinking, wow. So he's going to talk about the abductive argument that Lewis makes. And, you know, I'm an English person. I, I didn't know what abductive meant first. And then after he applies it to Lewis, I go, well, of course. And it changed everything for me. So um, apologists often look to Lewis to, to make a deductive argument for Christianity. A is A, B is B, and A, and a is true, B is true, and C is true. And he suggests, and I think rightly so, people ought to read what he says, but I agree with him, that Lewis doesn't make a deductive. He makes an abductive argument. And, and I don't know, you probably know all about this. Uh, an abductive argument takes you away to this is the most likely conclusion, right? It doesn't, it doesn't convince you in, the, in like an abdu uh, deductive or even uh, an inductive argument, but it takes you to the most likely conclusion, of course. And that's exactly what Lewis says again and again. The most likely, you know, if I have these desires that nothing on earth can satisfy, the most likely, and I think that's a great, a great approach to apologetics in the 21st century. We're out to convince people that Christianity is the most likely explanation for all these things. And, and I don't know how they disagree with that. So. When you make an abductive argument, it, it comes across with much more humility because you're saying, I think this is yes. the best explanation. 
And it, it also appeals to your own experience and invites the person you're speaking to to look to their own experience. That's right. That's because right. that's what Lewis does over the course of Surprise by Joy. He's saying, there were parts of my life I couldn't reconcile with my own philosophy. So which was more likely? Yeah, yeah. This is my story. This is this is what I found convincing. How about you? It really opens the door. No, I, I think so. So anyway, I didn't want to bring Alistair McGrath without mentioning. And of course, the other thing Andrew and he will bring up is the new date for the conversion and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. We have plans to get him on next season. Now, I just want to go back to the quote of the week that I read at the beginning uh, from a preface to Paradise Lost. In that quotation, Jack says that the first thing we need to do before judging any piece of workmanship or art is to know its purpose. What is it intended to do? And I chose that quotation because I think whenever we talk about biographies, it's really crucial to know the book's intended goal. And you've hinted at it a little bit already. What was the motivation for writing this biography? Because biographies about Lewis have been written in the past. So what else needed to be said? Yeah, that's a good question. Some people would say, you know, maybe nothing did, right? But I think I think there's still room to say stuff. And, and I'll just say some of the great biographies, of course, you know, Hooper's, Hooper and Green's biography, they were they were the first people who taught me about Lewis. And then George Sayer, his, his, his student, uh, which was another great one. And then Jack's Life by Douglas Gresham. These were all out um, before mine came out. Um, the Narnian by Alan Jacobs is is a pretty is a pretty famous one too. And then Alistair's is a pretty famous one. So they're all out there. Um, I'll, I'll say in one sense, uh, I, I took my cue from Tolkien, where he talked about that he and Lewis decided to write the kind of stories that they liked. And so for me, I tried to write the kind of biography that I would like. Uh, and and I think I think that's not a bad way for people to you can't go wrong hardly trying to write the story you'd like to read. And um, I would say the other biographies for me are, are are more or less trying to be more general biographies or comprehensive biographies where you learn a little bit about this, a little bit about that. You'll learn who Lewis's grandfather was and where he might be buried. And I just skipped all that stuff and tried to follow more or less the central story of Lewis's life, the search for joy. And that doesn't mean that I didn't include certain facts and dates. I, I did. I have a quite, quite a few of them. But they all had to serve that story. And they all had to combine to make a story. Um, and so, so that's what I tried to do and focusing on the other thing, you know, I'm an English teacher and focusing on where we see some of Lewis's life in his own writing. I mean, you guys brought up the other day when looking at that preface to Screwtape that he, people said, what years of theological study did you draw on to write Screwtape? And he said, well, I just looked inside my own heart. And of course his fiction is like that. Um, He'll write in his letters something he writes in his essays that he writes in his fiction that he writes in his nonfiction. And to bring all those together and tie them all together uh, is what I tried to go to do. The other thing I'll, I'll say was that um, I tried to bring in, in all sorts of relevant Lewis scholarship when I could and introduce people to some of the people who had taught me about Lewis and bring them in and, and, and tie it all together in one modest length book. Uh, it's not overly long. So that was my goal. And in anticipation of this interview, you sent me an article that you wrote about the perils, pitfalls, and pleasures of writing a new biography of Lewis. And I found your perspective pretty fascinating because I've often thought, oh, I would like to write a book about Lewis sometime. And as I was reading your article, I was thinking of all the times I'm invited somewhere to speak about Lewis. My first thought is, great, this will be awesome. My second thought is, oh my goodness, I only have an hour? What on you know? What do I pick out of out of all the things that I could talk about? Uh, 
So would you mind sharing a few of your perils, pitfalls, and pleasures in producing this book? And I'll say this, if people go looking for it, if they'll Google perils, pitfalls, and pleasures of writing a new biography, it's a piece that I gave at the Taylor Colloquium, and it's published as part of their Inklings Forever. Um, first thing I said is a biography cannot be just a collection of facts, however accurate or new. It has to bring a person to life. It cannot or should not be just a summary, but an analysis and a synthesis. It cannot be just a list of names and dates, but why they are important. That said, of course, you have to include many names and include many dates and some summary, but you have to find a way to bring them to life. Laura Miller, who is a Lewis person that, or a side, she has an interest in Lewis, and I often disagree with her. She looked at all the 30 books, I think, that came out in advance of the first Narnia film way back in 2005. And she referred to them, and correctly so, as by and large, quote, a shelf full of mediocrity. And, you know, I'll warn your fans out there, not... Not every Lewis book is a good Lewis book. There's a lot of, I, don't, I, I guess there's a handful of bad ones, but there's a lot of mediocre ones. So part of the trick though, is deciding how much to tell your audience and you know how much do they want and give them that amount, no less and no more. And that is the trickiest part is to say, I'm not going to go on for six pages, but I'm not going to do just one. I'm going to go on for three and, and try to make it interesting. Biographers also have a tendency to toot their own horn too much. I don't, my next one was a biography should not be just a vehicle for the biographer to advance his or her own personal ideology. And one of the bad biographies, which I'm not going to name, it is guilty of that one in spades. It is. You find out much more about the author than you find out about Lewis. Yes. And, and, and the bits that you find out about Lewis are like through the author's lens. I mean, he has to talk about Lewis at some point. And when he does, it's like, really, that's where you're going with this. And so uh, there's a couple like that. And so beware when people pick up a biography, people might want to go down their own track and that's okay. To go with that, I would say to biographers, don't assume that you understand your subject better than the subject does himself. I mean, every so often you'll see somebody who thinks that's what they should do. They should sort of deconstruct Lewis and he said A, but when he said A, I know he meant B. Mm. So I would say beware of that. And I, I think we'll we'll get onto that a little bit later as well. Yeah, yeah. And the spotlight should be on the subject, not the biographer. Every so often you see biographers who um, pull the spotlight from the person they're writing about and put it back on themselves. You know, look what I discovered, this secret letter or this secret plan or something. And then there's times where there's going to be few or no facts. And I should say biographers should proceed cautiously when that happens. Um, and then I'll give you a weird one for Lewis people. Uh, that I think doesn't happen so much with other things. Somebody writing about Lewis often has found Lewis to be incredibly meaningful and inspirational and helpful in their own life. Uh, and so how sort of objective do they need to sound? Is it okay to make it clear that you're you know, a Lewis fan as well as a Lewis scholar? And I made it clear. I, I was happy to say I was a Lewis fan long before I was a Lewis scholar, and I still am a Lewis fan. And um, you know, there's a different kind of book where wants to be somebody wants to be really objective and very, you know, impartial in every sort of way. And for every and, and sometimes they overdo it because they obviously are Lewis fans. So then for every good thing they say, they have to find three bad things to say, which aren't necessarily there or is weighty, but they're trying to be so carefully objective about the whole thing. And then I'll give you the last one. And this is this really only worked for me. I don't know that it works for other ones, but since I was 
telling about Lewis's journey, you know, from darkness to light, from cynical atheism to joyous Christianity. He's got such an inspirational story. I thought, well, my story better be somewhat uplifting and inspirational. And so maybe that's a unique perspective that I was taking, but it, it, I, I, I took it intentionally. So, Well, while we'll never be able to do it justice in the time we've got left today, let's, let's talk about Lewis's life and some of the things that you talk about in your book. Now, since this is a spiritual biography of Lewis, we have to talk about joy because Lewis's own spiritual autobiography was called Surprised by Joy, and he makes it very clear in the introduction that joy is going to be the central theme of this book, and if this doesn't interest you, you should just quit now. And I will admit, the first time I tried to read Surprised by Joy, I didn't understand what he meant, I got confused, and I ended up just abandoning the book. So I think that's probably a really good place to start. How would you explain joy, and what was its role in Lewis's life? Yeah, and, you know, could he have picked a better word? I, I don't I know. So. I don't have one. At, at like the end Zane of the Zook. day, you, you can't do better. Yeah, Zane Zook is, is what he's talking about to some extent, but you know that's harder to spell and harder to say uh, than joy with a capital letter. But he means this kind of longing uh, that many people have felt that that's different than normal longing, small l longing. This is capital L longing that that isn't fulfilled, but is a sweeter and more beautiful and lovely feeling than even a desire that is fulfilled. Um, and he's felt it stirred by many different things. And it was his, it was a big question mark in his life. He, he, he says, I was surprised by joy. He's using a Wordsworth quote there, by the way, uh, from a Wordsworth sonnet, but he really was shocked by it because where should it come from? You know, he was a thoroughgoing atheist, believed thoroughly in, in evolution for a while. Why would a physical creature have this longing for something beyond this earth, where would it ever come from if we're just, you know, um, atoms and molecules? So, so he was shocked by it. And where in the world did it come from? And he, why did he love it so? Why did he love that longing so much better than anything that was being fulfilled in his life? And so that was his, his long search. And of course, it ended up with his, it was a longing for God, for heaven. And he called it joy with a capital J. Um, and to further complicate things, you know, late in life, he meets someone and gets married to someone named Joy. So he's surprised by Joy again. Um, but anyway, that's what it is. And when I first found Lewis and he, he talked about that feeling, I go, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. That's it. So he says, it's the central story of my life. And I think the suggestion is it's really the central story of any everyone's life. If you let yourself feel it, we're made for that longing, right? Um, if this world isn't our home, well, we have, to, we're, we're, we have a built-in longing for another home that comes out in that feeling that's so lovely and mysterious and deep and you know anyway that's where he goes with it and once you understand that i think it's it's okay but at the beginning you're thinking what is he talking about yeah that was true for me it was after i read saint augustine's confessions and he spoke about the restless heart and then i reread surprised by joy then everything fell into place yeah augustine has the great thing our hearts are restless until they rest in you and you think okay man, this guy's writing, you know, almost two millennia ago, you know, 1700 years ago. And Lewis, gosh, he's writing, you know, getting close to 80 years ago. The human heart hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. That hole in the human heart that longs for something that can't be filled with anything else that we do try to fill with other things still will never be filled except with God. So, you know, it's, it's a great thing to find. And it's a great thing to conceptualize it that way. I, I will say the church I went to, like I say, very big on loving God with your whole heart, but they would never 
say something like that, you know, that there's this longing that can't be filled, you know, this thing that we just talked about. And so when I heard it from Lewis, I thought, yeah, that's it. Now, one thing people often note when they read Surprised by Joy is that Lewis spends an inordinate amount of time on some subjects and then breezes right past others. And these other subjects we would think would be much more important. And this prompted fellow inkling, Dr. Robert E. Havard, uh, he said that it shouldn't be called Surprised by Joy, but Suppressed by Jack, because of all the things that Lewis didn't talk about in his autobiography. So what do you make of Dr. Havard's assessment? Yeah, and I'll just say when people pick up Surprised by Joy, this is another one, don't skip the preface, because it's a question once raised, it's incredibly easy answered in the very first couple sentences. Here it is. This book is written partly in answer to requests that I would tell how I passed from atheism to Christianity, and partly to correct one or two false notions that seem to have got about. Start of the next paragraph. He repeats himself. This book aims at telling the story of my conversion and is not a general autobiography. This means in practice that is, it gets less like a general autobiography as it goes on. The earlier chapters, the net has to be spread pretty wide in order that when ex the explicitly spiritual crisis arrives, the reader may understand what sort of person my childhood adolescence had made me. When the buildup is complete, I confine myself strictly to business and omit everything, however important by ordinary biographical standards, which steam seems at that stage irrelevant. So, you know, poor guy, he tells us right off, I'm not going to tell you every detail. This isn't a general biography. And here's why. Here's the reason. Here's what it's going to look like. And then you're right to say four or five different critics will come in and say, aha, why is he not talking about this? Well, because he just told us why. And as I told you before we started recording, my favorite book is The Great Divorce. And whenever I'm talking to people about it, I have to spend most of my time telling people to read the preface of that book because they spend all their time thinking, this is what C.S. Lewis believed about the afterlife. And he explicitly says, "This is not, I'm not putting this forward as what actually happens. I have a different aim in mind. Don't skip prefaces. I think that's, uh, we've all learned our lesson now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Instead of don't, don't skip breakfast, don't skip preface. So. <laughs> preface, second preface, 11th Anyway. Second prefaces, yeah. <laughs> so... At a high level, what do you think are the key moments in Lewis's life that really shaped his spiritual development? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I would say the big picture will be his experience of, of the good, the true, the beautiful, and often through nature, often through books, occasionally through music. Um, so that's the quick answer. The, the, the longer answer will be often through books that we can't quite figure out how the heck it came through because it's like, not always... There's like a whole fantastic. bunch of people... Yeah, Fantasties, right? Or, or uh, what's the one he reads finally? Uh, anyway, where he comes back to things. Anyway, they, it, books that you'll pick up and say, oh, well, I better see, check this one out. And they don't seem to work quite well. But I will say this, what really works for me is Lewis's books. They will, they will set off that longing. So, you know, he's trying to do the same thing in his own books. Um, so, so, you know, literature, music, art, nature, yeah. I mean, and I will say this, everyone who reads Surprised by Joy knows the very first one, his brother has brought in this little mini fairy garden in a biscuit tin. And, you know, not for me, not for me, something else for me, but that one, not for me, right? And I've read Squirrel Nutkin and, you know, not for me. Uh, I've, I've looked at Tanger's Drapa, not for me. And, you know, 
that's okay. It, it, it's it, what's a lovely moment is to say, look, you felt it too. You may not have felt it from the same things that evoked it in me, but you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So yeah, literature, music, visions. I mean, he looked at the Castle Rock Hills outside of his bedroom window, he and Warney as kids. And he said, you know, they taught me longing uh, right there. So and, we know that feeling. And it's, it's those occasional phrases, like in that, in that exact section you're quoting, it taught me longing. That immediately put me back to the things in my childhood when I looked at places that seemed an impossible distance away. And then one day we actually got to go there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it worked. I'll give you another one that, that, that people kind of miss. Um, on page 10 in Surprised by Joy, he's going to say about how books influenced him, right? Um, he just tells us, I'm a product. But, but don't get to the books too quickly. Here's what he says. I'm a product of long corridors, empty sunlit rooms, upstairs indoor silences, attics explored in solitude, distant noises of gurgling cisterns and pipes, and the noise of wind under the tiles. And then he adds the big one, also of endless books, which everybody always jumps to. But we need to spend some time in those attics in silence and listen to the wind under the tiles to, to get that thing that Lewis is, says he's a product of. One subject which Lewis goes into great detail about in Surprised by Joy is his schooling. Would you mind giving us a brief overview of Lewis's schooling and talk about why you think he gives it such an emphasis in his book? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, every, every kid says his school is, you know, a prison camp, but Lewis is kind of was, right? He called it the concentration camp. Every middle schooler has complained about his teachers, his horrible teachers and principal, but Lewis has went to some notoriously bad ones. And of course he gets his revenge in Narnia, you know, 50 years later, where Edmund, when he first began to go wrong, started in school. And then Eustace of all, you know, takes the, he's at experiment house with the bullies. And at the end of the day, these bullies uh, get something that never happened in Lewis's experience, right? They get whacked with the flat of the swords from Eustace and Caspian after they come back. So he gets his, his comeuppance at the end, but yeah, he went to some really bad schools. And matter of fact, his brother at one point says, if he'd not been pulled out of school and sent to study with Kirkpatrick, he wouldn't have developed like he did. Finally, he got where he needed to be. And I don't know, you might know better than me, but, but, you know, my, my view of British schools come from two sources, Lewis and Dickens, and, you know, both horrible, right? <laughs> so, you know, I, I conclude that they must've been really, hopefully they're, I'm sure they're better now, but they must've been really, really bad for the longest time. I'm a bad person to ask. I hated most of my schooling. Uh, and I would add to the list of inspirations, Boy by Roald Dial. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good book, but it paints a yeah. horrible picture of British schooling. So, you know, he, he, he does say this, and we hear it at other times. You talked about it a couple of times in Screwtape, that, that there's something about difficult circumstances, Lewis tells us. And this is one of the things I learned from him. They seem to be the soil from which great faith and great adventures can spring. And, and, and even believers know this. On a good day, uh, I'll come home from school and Sharon will say, how was school? It was good. Everything okay? Yeah, everything was nice. And when I pray that night, I say, God, thanks for a good day. And well, that's about it. Days when nothing goes right, days when everything is is terrible, days when things have come up that should never have come up, days when I'm at my wits' ends are the days that drive me to God, they, that, that, that compel me to trust in him in a deeper way, compel me to seek him in a deeper way. And, you know, it's true for Christians, it's true for non-Christians, if you can't make it on your own. I mean, one of Screwtape's, one that I was looking over, um, contented worldliness 
seems to be one of the screw tape's greatest uh, weapons for keeping people thinking about from God. And so, so, so the opposite would be discontent. And Lewis had a lot of discontent in school that drove him to think about these things. He also, I'll just say this, when he goes to do, when he goes to do, uh, mere Christianity. He, he mentions in the preface, they picked me because I was an atheist for so long. So I knew what Christianity looked like from the outside. And that's that's absolutely true, Lewis says it. But I wish he would have said the other part too, because I think it's true. He also knew what disbelief or atheism looked like from the inside. He knew how shallow it was. He, he knew how little it could account for. He knew how unsatisfactory it was, especially on a bad day. Um, and, and, and those are all drawn from his early experiences in school and afterwards. So anyway, we see a lot of bad schools in Lewis um, for a long time. The thing that he says about his schooling that really resonates in me is he says it's, it's a good preparation for the Christian life because you feel like term is never going to end. <laughs> but it always eventually does come. So it actually fosters a longing. And my longing for the summer holidays when I could just stay in bed and read and didn't have to go and do homework and get up at the crack of dawn. And oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, I would put that down as a, as, a, as a very fervent spiritual practice of preparing me for uh, an adulthood of Christianity. Yeah. And, you know, without, without bad schools, I don't know where Narnie would be. He's got that famous phrase, you know, the term is over. The holidays have begun. And if he'd like school, he would say, summer is over. We can go back to school. <laughs> yeah, I've never understood those weirdos that are excited to go back to school. It's like, oh, I was bored at home. Oh, my goodness. You just sort out your life. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the things that I particularly appreciate about your book is that you help unpack for the American audience the strange terms that are used in England regarding schooling in general. And it's the sort of thing that I have to repeatedly explain because I both went to well, I, the terms I use now are a state school and a fee-paying school, just to make it a little bit clearer. But yeah, in England, we've got a bunch of weird terms. And then you go to Oxford and things get even weirder when you try and explain how the universities work and, and all the terms are involved. And I, I'm actually going to ask you not to explain this because this was one of my favorite things in your book, because uh, I want people to go and buy it. Uh, but I loved the way that you unpacked the very fortuitous consequences of Lewis not being able to get a job in philosophy and that he's then forced to go back and get an extra degree in English about how pivotal that was for Lewis's life and how things could have gone very differently if he hadn't have actually done that. So I'm not going to ask you to comment because I want people to go read the book. <laughs> Another subject, though, which Lewis moves very quickly past in Surprise by Joy is his involvement in the Great War, World War I. And it really would be natural to assume that this would be more prominent, particularly given the relationship between the problem of pain and coming to Christianity. What do you make of the, this massive absence? Yeah, and, and McGrath talks about that. So that's one of the, the, the frictions, right? Um, let's see. What, is, what does he say? I've got it right here. Why did Lewis spend three chapters of Surprise by Joy telling his relatively minor woes at Malvern and pay so little attention to the vastly more significant violence, trauma, and horror of the Great War? And then McGrath goes out on a limb, which I wouldn't have done. The simplest explanation is also the most plausible. Lewis could not bear to remember the trauma of his wartime experience. Well, I'm sure it was difficult to remember it, but... Lewis himself tells us on page 195, if you have the same one I does, he says this, the war has been so often described by those who saw more of it than I, that I shall here say little about it. So you have that. Other people fully described it. He couldn't add anything new. The other thing, secondly, he wasn't there that long. 
right? Six uh, he months? was there. Something like yeah, that. something like that. He, he goes over, he's there. He gets sick. He goes back to the hospital with something like trench fever. He reads Chesterton there. He goes back to the front. He gets wounded, what they call a blighty, right? You would know that better than I, where a wound that's not life-threatening, but gets you out of action, comes home. So he's not there for very long. And then he says this a few pages later, the rest of my war experiences have little to do with this story. So he, he kind of tells us that. That said, I think I think he draws a fair bit of World War One experience into screw tape with World War Two because his own experience in, in World War Two was incredibly safe. He was lived in the place where they sent children because they would be safe up in Oxford. So as I understand it, Hitler was not going to bomb Oxford. He wanted it as his capital if he could invade. So he was he was safe out there uh, on his nighttime patrols, uh, worrying about other places. So I think he drew quite a bit on. Um, his remembrance of the First World War. You know, he went to London sometimes to record the talks during bombs. So he would have known something about that. And, and he uses it in screw tape. But in his own life, it, it didn't affect his faith because he came to faith before before that, that all happened. He was, a, he was a Christian broadcaster by the time World War II came around. Yeah, that's sort of the, what, I, what I thought when I first read it as to why he doesn't talk about it too much. Because I don't think World War I changed him his schooling i think changed him it shifted his perspective yeah. he, but he went into world war one as an atheist and he came out an atheist he encountered horrors to be certain but i think it didn't actually adjust his journey in any way and so he therefore didn't feel that it really needed to be talked about world war one was terrible we all know that there's an awful lot of literature and poetry written about it so you know you can go and read spirits in bondage if you if you want to know how terrible that was yeah and I'll, I'll throw one more thing in that and that is this you're exactly right to say the part that related to his faith journey he does talk about you know he's sitting in that hospital and he happens to pick up chesterton and tells us all about chesterton he goes to world war one an atheist comes out of it taking maybe the first step toward faith by reading Chesterton. And he tells us about that first step. There's no other steps to talk about it, So the rest of the war didn't make him more of a Christian, didn't make him less of a Christian. It was the reading of Chesterton that, that helped him at that point. That, that was the only important thing that you, we really needed to get out of it. Yeah. Now, one thing that you do track in the book is Lewis's understanding of death. And he was a man who experienced a lot of death in his life from a very early age, his mother, then Paddy Moore, his other comrades in, in the Great War, Charles Williams, then everything that happened in World War II, Mrs. Moore, and then, of course, ultimately his wife, Joy Davidman. In broad strokes, how do you think his understanding of death changed over the span of his life? Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the best things Lewis can show us. He, he tells us the horror of his mother's death. And of course, he, this is back when the, the body is laid out at home, right? I mean, the, the, it's right there in your house and people come and visit with it and be there with it. And, and he just found it to be horrifying. Later, he goes to the war as a young man. I mean, I think about how young he was. I mean, younger than me and way, young, younger, way younger than me and younger than you too. And he sees the death and destruction there. He knows the death of his father. He knows quite a bit of death uh, in life. And his depictions of death as he becomes a Christian take on a, a very different, a very different hue. And he has screw tape mention that we've done a really good job convincing them that the worst thing that can happen, the worst thing that can happen is for you to die. And the best thing is for you to keep living. And of course, that's one of screw tape's great lies. And uh, in the very last, very last letter of screw tape, we get one of the most beautiful portraits of death you'll find in any literature, let alone in any Lewis. Um, on how 
you know, this man passes through and Lewis does just an incredible job of it. We see another lovely one in uh, Caspian where at the end, I guess it's what Jill and Eustace, they come back and Caspian's this old, old man by then. And he pulls in his boat into Narnia the, to the, to the dock there. And, and well, he dies right on the dock there. Right. And uh, anyway, um, they're suddenly so sorrowful and they blow back to Narnia and there's Aslan and he's crying too. And, and Caspian's down there in that stream. Right. And he gets a thorn and gets a drop of Aslan's blood. And pretty soon he comes alive again. And, we're given another beautiful picture of death. The other one is, is people should look at letters to an American lady. Late in life, he writes, Mary, what's her name? And says, you know, you know, can you not think of, of, of death as a friend, you know, uh, like taking off a really uncomfortable shirt at the end of days, you know, has this life been so good to you that you're going to miss it? You know, you know, your ride's here. This is your ride, man. It's going to be great. There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. Yeah, that's the great one. So anyway, he does a great job of, I don't know, what you call it, uh, redeeming death or reconciling death, rehabilitating, there's the word. He re rehabilitates death and gives it the Christian perspective, which, you know, is good. And, and I'll just say even in a grief observed, right? He does a really good job. There's the, there's the Bible phrase, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Now, to his credit, St. Paul is brilliant. He doesn't say we don't grieve because we're Christians. He says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. See, these people over here, they have no hope. And see how they grieve? You're going to grieve, but somehow it has to look different from them. When my dad passed away a couple of years ago, um, one of my non-Christian friends who was trying to be very nice, and let's start off by saying she was trying to be very nice, you know, and considerate, as people do. She said, you know, it must be really hard for you to, to think you'll never see your father again. I wanted to go, you have no idea what I believe or think. Have you not, do you not even know me? I mean, of all the things I think is I will see him again, but it is hard. To, to let him go now, but I don't believe for one second. So, And Lewis himself writes that we follow someone who wept at the tomb of his friend and before yeah. the city that he loved. Yeah. Now, this season, we've been working through the Screwtape Letters, and we had Paul McCusker on the show to talk about the annotated Screwtape Letters. You were the editorial assistant on that book, weren't you? I was at least one of them. So I'll tell you my Paul McCusker score. You'll like it because this is just how it's going to work for all your listeners. At some point, they're going to go to some Lewis thing once things start up again. So I was at this uh, Lewis thing out in LA before the third movie. I was in the hotel and I came down to have breakfast and all the places were filled. And there was one table with one guy writing in a journal and there was a seat there. I said, do you mind if I sit here? He said, sure. And I said, hi, I'm Devin Brown. And he said, Hello, I'm Paul McCusker. I go, oh my gosh, you're Paul McCusker. I, I you know, I've listened to the Narnia, uh, you know, uh, radio theater on, on cassette until they broke. And now I have the CD version and I listen to them over and over and over and over. So he and I became good friends. I've been to his house. And um, anyway, he's he's been a great friend and a great Lewis, Lewis guy for a long time. And um, I've enjoyed his work on all the stuff and I enjoyed hearing him on your show. And he's very good friends with Doug Grisham, as he told you. And um he said to Doug, he says, you know, we got to do an annotated version of screw tape letters. And I don't know if he told you much about this, but Doug Gresham is very reluctant to do annotated versions of things because he's he doesn't want them to become interpretations. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you go just a little too far in a note, it becomes not an annotation, but an interpretation. But he worked enough with, with Paul to kind of trust him. So anyway, at one point, Paul sent me the manuscript that he had and said, would you add any more annotations? So I think I added, you know, like 35. Uh, I, I just added every single thing I could. 
And uh, I think he kept 17 of them. So since then, uh, I, I keep telling Paul, get, get John to do some another annotated. Let's do another annotated. And, you know, we haven't gotten it yet. But I'll say this, at some point, all the books will be out of copyright. And then anybody and his brother could do an annotated version. So I, I think at some point, maybe the Lewis Company will, will allow some annotations that they'll have some control over, let alone what will come later. I mean, you can buy an annotated version of anything now, Dickens, uh, Jane Austen, Shakespeare, and no one, you can write whatever you want in those. So while they're still in the copyright, they have some control on them. Um, and, you know, my suggestion for annotation would be surprised by joy right here. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why. You know, everyone talks about Lewis and his audience. You know, he knew what his audience wanted. And I go, well, yeah, sort of. Because because the problem is he, he thought we were all like him, right? We'd all read as much as he had. And no one had read as much as he had, hardly. I certainly had. And so, you know, you know, the things that are now out of date, the things that don't travel well from England, and the things that are from buried in, you know, time, those would all be helped with annotations. Um, I'd like to see Surprised by Joy annotated not necessarily by me, but by somebody, I think it would be, it, it would bring it alive in some ways. So my pitch. Uh, what I think we're going to do is we'll, uh, we'll do the screw tape uh, autobiographical stuff. We'll do that as something separate. Uh, so we can keep this at about an hour. But like, okay. do you know when it's going out of copyright? Cause I know it already is in Canada. That's the impression that I got. And it, it gets blurry as to when it, it will be in the U S it does. So I have not heard. It depends on um, when, when it actually went into print. And if the, the, what I've heard is there's different laws between Canada and America. And there's also hard that the, the people who own the copyright want to date the edition as late as possible. So if Lewis made some small changes, we start to clock over. So I don't think we're close yet in America. So dang it, yeah. I have plans. The good news is you'll be around and you'll be at your scholarly peak when that happens. <laughs> I have actually been building up a set of software for to, to, to do annotations. My wife does the Chesterton podcast and his stuff is definitely out. So uh, That's I'm right. prepping That's it for right. her and, and I'm just doing it with an eye to, okay, Jack has got to be out of print at some point. Before we leave today, I do want to do a quick tour of some of your other works. Uh, could you tell us some of the other Inklings related books that you've written? Yeah, so I re I began by doing Narnia books, and um, everything turns into long of a story. So so inside Narnia started out as as a book that would call that would cover all the Narnia books, hence the name Inside Narnia. And I got to like page fifty, and I was on ch chapter two of Lion Witch and Wardrobe. So it became just a book about Lion Witch, which is great because then you get to do another book for Caspi and another book for Dawn Treader. And of course, these were tied to the release of the movies. Uh, as my wonderful editor at Baker said. Without a movie, we can't do a book like this because it, it, it just creates a huge tidal wave of interest that they can ride. So I did Inside Narnia, which actually became Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, Inside Prince Caspian, which, by the way, people who are going to write books, be careful. You want to have a sort of a franchise, but think of the title. Inside Caspian sounds, well, a little too, uh, you know, gastronomical or anatomical. What's in, here's the spleen, here's the gallbladder. Anyway, there's three of them, and then they pulled the plug on Narnia, and I because I thought I was going to do, you know, one of those every two years until I retired. Anyway, didn't happen. Then the Tolkien world started up with Hobbit. I missed the first wave of Tolkien mania with Lord of the Rings. I wasn't really doing that kind of work then. But with Hobbit came around, it opened up the chance to do the Christian world of the Hobbit. And then with the second movie, I did a book 
um, called Hobbit Lessons. And these are with Abington. And then my mom called me. She said, honey, Peter Jackson just said he's going to do a third movie of The Hobbit. I said, now that, she says, now that's better for you. I said, yeah, mom, it's better. Three is better than two. So there was no more book to write on The Hobbit. So I did a, a biography of Tolkien at that point. Um, and then the other project that I think people might be interested in is discussing mere Christianity. Zondervan, um, let me back up a bit. We did a, a school a school documentary, Modest Size, called um, C.S. Lewis, Why He Matters Today. And anybody listening can find that on the internet for free. Um, pretty good documentary. Doug's in it. Michael Flaherty's in it. Uh, Tim Keller's in it. Um, anyway, C.S. Lewis, Why He Matters Today. Uh, we did that one. And Zondervan wanted to make uh, a study guide that churches would use. Uh, a video and a book. So I think because of that movie, I got invited to go and pitch it to them. So then they, I got contracted to um, do the locations in Oxford and write the script that Eric Metaxas then uses as a host. And then I appear as one of those, because it's a, it's, a, it's a combination video and book. So I wrote the book discussing your Christianity. And let me warn people, we don't do every chapter. We, we do the highlights, uh, the big ones. <laughs> oh yeah, I did a small book called Bringing Narnia Home. Um, which didn't come out with any movie. So it ended up being a very small project, but it's kind of all of Narnia together if somebody's looking for a short one. And a little birdie told me that you were helping to edit Further Up and Further In from uh, the Fellowship of Performing Arts. Yeah, so one of the nice things, by the way, you guys talked about, you know, screw tape reminds us, Lewis through screw tape, that don't look for all the effects of the war to be bad. And I would say the same thing for COVID. Uh, COVID, of course, you know, taught us to, well, I'm sure COVID drove, made a lot of people turn to God during COVID. And, and if not, as Lewis would say, toward values and causes higher than themselves during this difficult time. Anyway, another plus of COVID was that um, Max McLean had a fellow. You ought to bring him on your show, by the way. He, he would be great, too. Anyway. My net he, is um, closing he, around him. He can't hide forever. There you go. <laughs> We're good that. He, um, I was part of a Zoom thing where he read the, the working script for his next Lewis on stage production. Uh, and the first one is C.S. Lewis' reluctant, most reluctant convert, which is now a movie, uh, soon to come out. And uh, so his next one is C.S. Lewis stole your tagline further up and further in. And so I was watched a Zoom and I sent him some thoughts. He liked my thoughts and he sent me the script. And so I'm sending him some possible edits for it. Uh, other things he might include, some thoughts about what I think could be included. So that's that's a fun project. I know what you've included. It's a scene where Lewis admits that Till We Have Faces isn't actually his best book, right? Ah, oh, that would be good. The, the, <laughs> the, the thing, this is this is the middle Lewis. So he, I think he's got plans for three. So we're not to Till We Have Faces there. But hopefully I'll be, you know, connected to Max enough that I could get that in there. <laughs> Wonderful. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for coming on Pints for Jack. Uh, where can people go and pick up a copy of A Life Observed? And where can they go to find out more about you? Well, I'll say the easiest place is, of course, Amazon or christianbooks.com, especially if people are still at home. And they can find me at my Asbury webpage. Uh, they'll find the tiniest, most unsatisfactory biography of me on my Amazon webpage. But those two places would be good starts. Excellent stuff. As always, I'll include links in the show notes. I'd like to thank Dr. Brown again for coming on the show, as well as all of our Patreon supporters, especially our top-tier supporters, Kimberly, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Gillis, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. And please join us again next time when we're going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>